get started in here. It's Torres oh! to get Welcome to the football show. Coming up, we're going to be talking Ireland's crunch tie away to Austria, populous England versus Scotland, and Bundesliga and UEFA commentator Rob Daly is going to talk us through the most hated team in Germany. We're going to start with a roll call today. Enda Call, are you here? I'm here. And Oshin McQuarns, are you here? Present. Lads, in general, like, how do you feel about... I mean, Oshin, I know you're fond of Leeds United. How would you feel if they were taken over by such an entity who changed the badge to Red Bull, the shorts were now red, and... But you got to be bankrolled to the Premier League. What was your opinion on that? Yeah, it's it's a big dilemma. I mean, it, there was talk a couple of years ago of Red Bull taking over at Leeds, and there was I saw a lot on Twitter of would we kind of sell our history to to, to get back up to the big time? It's it's something that you really need to sit down and think about. I think it, I mean there's so, there is so much history at clubs like that, like it, especially for Leeds United. I don't think I think it's it's kind of buying it's buying to sell you kind of in in a way. Mm. Like it's it's a cash twenty two. You can't really win because you're you're okay. You're in the Premier League. You're maybe doing well in the Premier League, but like, what have you sacrificed for that? I mean, I think personally, as a Leeds fan, I wouldn't like it because we have so much tradition, such a big club, so much history. I wouldn't like to, to do something like that. I did hear talk of Swindon maybe getting taken over by Red Bull. I don't know how that would go down in Swindon as a club. I'm sure a club have a great amount of history there. They were a Premier League side, of course, once. But no, I just for me, I think I wouldn't be able to to kind of live with it. Yeah, Swindon are in advanced talks even since since we were talking to mm-hmm. Rob about it. So it'll be amazing to see if the same thing happens that happened with Leipzig that they just get bankrolled to the very top and in in five five years time we see Swindon Town, Red Bull Swindon, Red Bulls. <laughs> oh, sorry, Red yeah. Bull Swindon, uh, yeah. in fourth or fifth or even top of the Premier League. All right, sure. Without further ado, we'll just play you the interview here now. Just for the, the first question, Rob, can you just go through the background of how the club came to be? Okay, so um, RB Leipzig um, were just a, a small club in, in sort of what is the former Eastern Germany um, and, uh, you know, effectively were reborn uh, in 2009 uh, after being bought by, effectively bought by Red Bull, uh, the, the drinks company who own other clubs like uh, uh, New York Red Bulls and uh, Red Bull Salzburg in Austria, who are a very successful uh, football team there. And since 2009, they've managed to climb the ranks of German football to the Bundesliga, where they currently sit second. Um, but this, the ownership of the club very much goes against what is a uh, not just a traditional uh, form of, of football club ownership in Germany, but also like the actual rules and regulations of being allowed to participate in, in the top flight of German football. But even though they are the most hated club in Germany at the moment, they do seem to be gathering a bit of support from the people in the city. Why do you think they've taken to the club? You know, you're asking great questions. That's an excellent point as well. Because, you know, East Germany, I don't think has had a team in the Bundesliga since Energy Cottbus, maybe. I think I can't quite remember. 
So sometimes since the former East Germany had a team. And also Leipzig hadn't had, you know, it's a big place and it hadn't had a successful team. From it, they have this state-of-the-art, wonderful, you know, there's a wonderful football stadium in Leipzig now. They're packing it out with, uh, I commentated on um, their 3-1 win uh, recently uh, against Werder Bremen, where Serge Gnabry actually scored for Bremen, having left Arsenal in the summer. And it was packed out, 43,000 people there. You know, they see it as their local community, even though the club's new, and we're seeing new football franchises pop up, franchises pop up all over the world. You know, you look at someone like New York City FC, that's yeah. Manchester City in New York, and Manchester City are a company. So, you know, there's, there's all little variations of this going on, but because it's so against the traditional ideas of German football, that's why people are angry. The people of Leipzig, I'm sure, are not. They don't care. And, and in Germany, they're being labelled uh, Bayern Jäger uh, Nummer 1, which is um, Bayern Hunters Number 1, that they're the closest team to Bayern at the moment, just two points behind the team that everyone expects will be champions eventually. Just on a final note, Rob, before we let you go, do you think like football is going to operate in the future more like this? Like, Are we on the verge of seeing something like a McDonald's FC or a Burger King football club? <laughs> I'm really hoping we don't see that. <laughs> uh, with Ronald McDonald prancing down the touchline as a mascot. Although I was a fan of the Hamburglar. I liked his, <laughs> I liked his gear. Um, I think, uh, you know, you'd, in a way you'd hope not. I'm, you know, when I go, I'm in Germany sort of once a week at the moment and you speak to fans and there's genuine animosity for RB Leipzig. Outside of Germany, I think there's a mild respect for some of the things that they've done, certainly in, in, in keeping pace with Bayern in the, in the opening weeks of the season. I think we will see more of this. You know, Leipzig aren't being challenged by the authorities about their membership model particularly. They're getting away with it. Um, but the thing I would point to is how many teams have done it already? Uh, how many companies have bought up football clubs and have done this? It isn't many. In terms of a total rebrand, like the Leipzig thing, you know, mm. we look at Red Bull Salzburg. Again, that had great, uh, there was great, there's been great friction to that. Uh, in Austria as well. We haven't seen it. I mean, I don't know. There, there are companies who have pre-existing interest in football clubs. So, um, sorry if I'm rambling on here. Bi-Labour <laughs> no, 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 no. For example. Yeah. It's, uh, a, it's so, actually so, it's sneaking into England a little bit now because Tottenham are uh, giving away their naming rights and Uber are currently, they're, they're currently the highest bidder. So, the new the, Tottenham. The stadium? Sta- yeah. The new stadium? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's very American, isn't it? I mean, we've seen a lot of that in America, things like the, Staples Arena, and um, they've tried, you know, there, there has been resistance to it here, but we're, you know, more and more um, resistance is waning to that kind of thing. I mean, you look into the championship and you look at half the stadiums and you mm. go, Who, what on earth is that stadium? King I like to think I know a bit about football, Sports but because the sponsors come in and just rename these stadiums every season something different, you know, I suppose a lot of those clubs need money and the Premier League are just getting cash thrown at them I mean you know it's it's going to take some real strong will but heaven forbid some clubs should can show a bit of you know a bit of mm. friction if they don't want to rename their stadium to, to keep it as Anfield or Old Trafford rather than Burger King Anfield <laughs> or, or wimpy Old Trafford I think that suits has a ring <laughs> what's to us what's the Irish one what's the Irish sort of McDonald's thing oh Supermax Supermax Supermac, exactly, yeah. So I, think, yeah, I don't think we're going to see the Supermac Olympic Stadium. Really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thanks very much, Rob. It was great to have you on.
we now move on to a story which, in my honest opinion, gets to me a little. As we know, a couple of months ago, 71 people lost their life in a plane crash in Colombia. On board the plane was the Brazilian side Chapecoense and several journalists. Since the disaster, tributes have been continuous and the side have now gathered themselves and rebuilt the team and are back playing football. Now they have signed a deal with Qatar Airlines for a shirt sponsorship. Somebody who has commented uh, on this topic as it broke and as it developed, Ewan McKenna, and he joins us on the phone from Brazil. Ewan, first of all, is there a sense of tragic irony around this that uh, Qatar Airlines, an airline company, are sponsoring a team that, that had their team wiped out in a plane crash? It's an odd one and one that I've been trying to get my, my head around because the news only broke, I think, about a week ago. Um, it was first reported that this might be happening. In fairness to Qatar Airways, and God forbid that me defending a, a massive multinational, um, I mean, they're not a small airline. They've they've done nothing wrong. Um, there's a lot of other things that grate more with this story from day one with me than this Um it graded with me that the Daily Mail in England uh, reported that the pilot was a hero for allegedly dumping fuel while he circled when the plane that he was flying in Avrojet cannot dump fuel, and this man was effectively a murderer. Um, it graded with me that Brazilian football clubs came out before the bodies were even cold and offered players on loan to Chapoquenzi for next season as if this was a football story rather than a human story. It graded with me that Internacional, a big club in Porto Alegre, who, who were relegated last year, unheard of given their size, they tried to stop relegation happening from the league in lieu of this tragedy by taking advantage of it. And other stuff still grates with me. It grates with me that the uh, dispatcher who tried to warn the airline and dispatchers in airlines, they're usually younger people without much authority. She tried to stop them from flying and was told basically to shut up. Um, she wants extradition to, or she wants to, to to flee Bolivia to come to Brazil. She hasn't been allowed, and now faces a court case against her in Bolivia for not managing to stop the plane taking off. Um, and then even with the club, they played their they played their first home competitive game since the accident uh, about ten days ago. Their stadium holds twenty two thousand people. Seven thousand people showed up for that game. So there's a lot of things that I think great with me before a company trying to, to put money money into them. Um, I, it does. I mean, it does feel a little bit weird, but if the money helps, so be it. Qatar Airlines have done nothing wrong, and it's, it's hardly surprising that uh, a major company is looking to get people to talk about them through a marketing deal. Do you feel that this is much more of a PR stunt from on their behalf? Because what, what deal does a Middle Eastern-based company have putting their name on a South American team shirt I mean what what benefit is that actually going to be be to them well it's, it's the, I suppose it's the PR around talking about it if people see it as bless their hearts aren't they very nice contributing to this the same reason all these stories most of them fake came out about footballers offering money and players wanting to go and, and, and play for them and whatnot. Um, I, I think a lot of it can be a PR exercise it might not be that at their heart but it, it can look like that when it comes to players Um they're getting talked about. That's that's what a major company does and wants in terms of their 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 advertising section, and 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 it's working. And if it's seen in a positive light and it does come true, then then fair enough. I I, I think you know what if they want to give Chapel Quincy more money in terms of a sponsorship deal than they've ever had before, regardless of 
the feeling about it being an airline. They're not responsible for running a, a shoddy airline. Um, they just happen to work in the same industry, which is absolutely massive. And I don't think anyone in, in Chapoquency would be complaining if the deal comes through. Uh, I'd be much, again, I, I've listed the things that have bothered me. There's many more. I mean, and if you want to talk Qatar and football, uh, there are other issues other than their airline sponsoring a team down here. I'd have major issues with, like, their, their human rights abuses over stadia ahead of the World Cup. Yeah. And I may be really cynical when I say this, uh, but the way that I perceive this is is Qatar basically saying we are a safe airline, unlike the the one responsible for the death of the players, because it's now been revealed that there wasn't enough fuel for the plane to get there, and there was loads of different issues surrounding the actual airline. So I, I may be cynical saying that, but ethically, I do I just think that's wrong. It's it's a tough one. I mean, if if one company in your industry that's based eight thousand miles away from you is a, a, a shambolic, uh, profit-making, greedy organisation that wants to put its its passengers' lives at risk, just because they share an industry, do they share other things? I I, I do I do get where you're coming from in terms of it's just the airline that great, but maybe Qatar. I mean. Maybe it is, as you say, or maybe they're just trying to look good. I mean, it's all a PR exercise, regardless of how you feel. They're not giving the money for nothing. They're giving the money for PR, ultimately. Yeah. Um, but if, if Chapoquency do the deal and they have no problem with it, maybe maybe no one else should either. Ewan, just before I let you go, I was just wondering, have you got any more uh, 3 a.m. phone calls from Lance Armstrong? No, no, he's gone off. He even, he even unfollowed me on Twitter. Uh, oh. So, uh, no... <laughs> No, I've been I've been let sleep in the morning, so I have. But uh, <laughs> oh, fair play to him. He's, he's moved on. I've moved on. You know, but it is what it is. I can't say I was surprised. Maybe I should have known better, uh, given his track record and how he, he's used people in the past. But uh, live and learn. So we're going to move over to Italy now because we're going to have uh, Forza Italian footballs Connor Clancy on the phone to talk to us through the the Mario Cardi situation and the latest on that. So for for those of you that don't know, basically. What happened was Mario Icardi, when he was at Barcelona, he was sharing a room with Maxi Lopez. He somehow ended up with uh, Maxi Lopez's wife, who is now his agent. He has a tattoo of all three of Maxi Lopez's children on him, and uh, and he regularly posts Instagram pictures of Maxi Lopez's children. But um, last February, he recounted details of a confrontation with the Inter Milan Ultras, in which he apparently claims he tried to give a shirt to a young child. One of the ultras ripped it away. He details this in the book. He claims that the uh, the rest of the Inter team have um, praised him on confronting the ultras. And yeah, the Inter Milan fans aren't very happy with him at all and completely refute his claims, claim it to be false. And they've announced that he's no longer their captain. Uh, the club have come out and said they're happy enough to stick by Mario Riccardi but I'm going to play you the interview with Connor now and he's just going to go into more detail of exactly what's going on there regarding his agent it's a bit of a strange situation can you go into a bit of a background about who she is and how she came into this position right <laughs> um, yeah she is her name is Wanda Nara, Nara now Riccardi she yeah. used to be Maxi Lopez's wife um, she had I think three kids with Lopez then when Icardi moved to Italy, he was living with Maxi Lopez because they were two Argentine players. And I think they knew each other from their time at Barcelona. And while he was living with Lopez, he and Wanda got together. Um, Lopez and Wanda split. Icardi 
post photos of the kids with his name on their jerseys. He got their names tattooed on his wrist. Um, it's a really distasteful situation. Wanda Nara has always come out and posted photos of the kids in a Cardi shirt and just to stir the pot more with Maxi Lopez. And they're both, Cardi and Wanda Nara, I think, are very well suited for one another. And you can take from that what you will. Connor, thanks a million. It was great to have you on. You can follow Connor at, at Connor Calcio on Twitter. You can read his stuff on ForzaItalianFootball.com, ExtraTime.e, or listen to him on the Final Third podcast. Well, most people, especially the GAA lads, will tell you that soccer players are very soft. But in Donegal, the Finn Harps legend Kevin McHugh showed that this is just not true when he drove himself to hospital after cutting off his finger in a training ground accident. We actually have Kevin on the phone now. Um, can you just give me a run through of what actually happened to you? Well, I suppose it is what it is. Um, I was trying to get over a fence day or three something and my, my ring got caught on the, the top of the fence, basically. And pretty instantly, um, I knew, knew what happened and I was just trying to deal with it from there on in, you know. And... Um, I just, I just saw on Twitter I was following you live uh, when you were live tweeting it. What gave you the idea to live tweet it? Well, I suppose when I was in the car um, on the way to the hospital, I was uh, phoning my wife and I was trying to explain that it was kind of serious but not something to be overly worried about at the same time. But serious enough that she had to leave work, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I was trying to, but she, was, she wasn't buying it. Um, she didn't know what I was, uh, what I was on about, so... Basically, I was taking a photo when I was on the way up in the car. I took a photo um, to try and send there, uh, just to let her know that it's serious. So finally, working, get, get out and collect the weigh-ins. So obviously, when I got up to the hospital, then I was uh, just to keep my mind off things. I was on, I was online on Twitter and I, and, I, and I posted it. You know, obviously, I didn't expect it to go go as far as it did, but it did. You know. And now on to one of the most infamous stories in football history, largely claimed the biggest con man in the Premier League, Ali Dia has not been traced for 20 years since he managed to play 54 minutes for Southampton in a 2-0 loss to Leeds back in 1996. That is, until last week when Bleacher Report released a piece entitled Finding Ali Dia and managed to get his side of that controversial story. On the line we have writer for that article, Kelly Naki, who set out with a team to Senegal where she met Ali's mother and France where his son is currently playing football. Do you feel like he might have been a little bit delusional as well? Or like the way the article kind of perpetuates that he seemed to truly believe he was up to the standards, but yeah, and he you know, doesn't consider himself him a con play. man, I guess. Yeah, I, I have no clue if he was terrible. It seems he wasn't very good, clearly, because he wasn't kept around and Sunis didn't think he was any good, and mm. you know his teammates didn't think he was any good. So I like, didn't see the the film. I'm not an expert at judging football yeah. talent. I um, suppose the I suppose like a better way of maybe wording this question would be like a lot of I suppose a lot in a lot of people's memory now he was a complete amateur who somehow conned right. his way onto the pitch. Was yeah. he really like the complete amateur people remember him, or like how much footballing pedigree would he have had? That that's verified, I guess. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, I will tell you this. So Matty Torrey, who runs a youth academy in Senegal, and he sent a yeah. couple of people uh, to the Premier League. Um, he said he was really good and he had the talent. He just didn't have the discipline when he was younger. He just liked to party too much, basically. Um, and, you know, the Momar Jang, who is uh, his former classmate, who's a journalist, 
he also thought he was really talented. Um, as I mentioned in the article, his parents said somewhere along the way there was an injury that required an operation. I wonder if that just forever altered his potential professional path, you know. Um, but I don't know the answer if, if he was any if he was ever any good enough to even consider it. Um, but, I mean, I can tell you the guy tried for years to do it, you know, and he was really uh, determined to give it every shot he could. Thanks very much, Kelly. It was great to have you on. Let's go straight over to the Hurling Championship with Paul Merson, who's watching the game at Nolan Park. Kill Kenny versus Wexford Merce. Oh, I thought this was going to be lively, Jeff, but the Kill Kenny boys have come out with sticks, Jeff. Oh, I don't believe it! So the Wexford lads! <laughs> this could kick off lively, Jeff! Bill Point is absolutely disgraceful. Point. You know, and then, you know, Mickey Hart jumping up and down and cheering and smiling afterwards as if they've achieved something good. I'll tell you what they've achieved. They've achieved something absolutely rotten. And they're becoming a template for clubs and for counties all over the country now. Young teams going out, an under-16 match on Wednesday night. Two sweepers methodically pulling down the opposing team as they're coming up the feed. This is how you do it to get the job done. This is the new language. The, euphemis- the euphemism for cheating is closing the game out. That, that what he, what Sean Cavanagh did, I cannot believe that somebody awarded him the man of the match. That was a total and absolute disgrace. That's the antithesis. Hold on of what Gaelic games are about. You're supposed to be able to look your opponent in the face. What, we, what do we teach kids? So last week we witnessed one of the most embarrassing performances from a minor county team uh, probably ever. It was kind of it was it was kind of embarrassing and it was it was disheartening for the team. Wexford lost by seventy one points to, or Wexford beat Kilkenny by seventy one points in a minor county semi final. We have Caleb Roach on the phone now, a man who has been part of the Kilkenny footballing panel since he was sixteen. Uh, Caleb, thanks very much for coming on. No hassle talk. It's been a bit of an embarrassing week for Kilkenny minor football. Uh, what's your take on the game last week? I was actually at the match myself, so I was. And um, I suppose a very disappointing result, like, because I suppose when you put, throw a team together three weeks before a match, what do you expect, really? Like, you know, and when there is no uh, club football structure in Kilkenny, how are you supposed to get a team to compete at inter county level? Like, you know, there's club football, a team in club football in Kilkenny, minor team, is guaranteed one football match a year. Yeah. And even if you win that match, as my own club, we uh, won the semi-final last year's championship. We got a walkover in the quarter-final. We won the semi-final. And we're still waiting on last year's county final to be played. Like, uh, I don't know how they can expect to put a team into the county when there is no club structure. Like, you know... Um, and as I say, I was at the match myself the other day, and I felt sorry for the young lads, to be honest. Like, and especially when you had some of the hierarchy of the county boards sitting there at the start of the match, oh, laughing and glowing, didn't care about the match, but as the scoreline started to go the other way, they suddenly disappeared. You know, it's not good enough, like. Caleb, uh, I'm I, I'm from Waterford first and foremost, and I'm I'm happy when Kilkenny get beaten as the hurlers, you know, just just from a rival point. But I'm I'm not happy to see what what happened transpire last week. Um, 
But in in my county's case, uh, we 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 have a similar situation. Although we do have for people who who are we have more people who are willing to play football. We've I'm from West Waterford, it's a stronghold, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, we had a we had a thing when our county final was played. Senior county final was played the day before the Munster semi final against Nemo Rangers yeah. and uh, Stradley, who who turned out to win. Yeah. They they did not turn up for the Division Four uh, for the for the senior county team. They they in protest against the county board. They they said they they're not going to take part. Do you think even if you guys or some some at senior level, uh, if you take a stand, that anything will be done? I don't think so, to be honest. Like the law was, they don't really care. To be honest, once they get to get a team to fulfil a fixture, as far as I can see, you know, it's just a tick boxes for them. I think you know, they they took the senior team or the junior team will say out of the national league a couple of years ago, and now they have them playing over in in um, in Britain, which is <clears throat> great. They're playing football, all right, and it was great to win it last year and all that. But realistically, like you don't want to be going to to England to play Gaelic football. Like you want yeah. to be playing it in Ireland. You know, you want to be competing with teams here, whether it be a junior level or whatever. You know, there has to be more done for it. But I don't think they're going to do anything in the near future anyway. They're also saying, you know, a lot of people in comments on Facebook and stuff have been saying that they should be forcing Kilkenny people. Do you think that's a way forward as well? If I, I, personally, in my opinion, you can't force someone to do something they don't want to do. No, but like all you have to do, in my view, is put a proper structure underage for underage teams and say at the start of the year, say to teams, all the teams in Kilkenny, do you want to play football? If you want to play football, put in a football team. Simple as that. You'd get your underage teams having playing football. So you would. So when they do come to minor and these cases, like you will have a better better team. Like the only proper age structure in Kenny that's played properly in football is under fourteen level. Which, in fairness, there's a league championship yeah. to get enough games in both. Like, and we seen last year where the Lachlan Gales under fourteen team and Dan's fourth under fourteen team competed well in the field and yeah. both of them got to two finals I'm not sure what division it was in now it wasn't the top ones you know but they got to it it just shows when they're playing regular football they will compete with other teams around the country like. Caleb that's brilliant thanks very much for coming on no hassle at all thank you that was he, he was passionate wasn't he he seemed a lot he seemed very disheartened by it yeah no I, I can totally feel where he's coming from uh, especially with the county board I think it was more for the media uh, like the chairman came out and said, uh, "I'm very sorry for the young lads who, who, who how this happened to." But uh, the, the, the same thing the same thing happened in Waterford for the for the the, the club, and uh, the one of the former managers, Jackson Kiley, came out and he said to the Irish Examiner, he said that will not change anything. He was like, "That was a waste of time." He said because it's just for the media to show that oh we're we're putting in, for the GAA, I suppose, to, to show them in a more positive light. It is an absolute disgrace, and I'm not sure if you're aware with the hurling banter page. He put up a thing, uh, stick stick to the hurling lads or something like that. He put a little little bit of a jab. He's a Clare man, but uh, he also uh, under the comments th- there was some very 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 passionate posts saying these are young lads. You know, mental health is such an issue with young lads yeah. at this age. Uh, getting beaten by seventy one points in any sport uh, or whatever the whatever the system you're playing in is so embarrassing. And I my my heart does go out to him. Uh, 
I I hope no, I, my worst enemy doesn't. If 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 Cork or Tipperary, if that happened to, I it, I I would feel very very sad, you know. Owen Kelly's had uh, two goal opportunities, but he's got a point from a free already. This from 20 metres out. Oh, it's in the back of the net! Totally for Dublin, but his foot right through, raises his arm into the sky. He knew from the moment he kicked it, that it was over. It's a four-point lead. The windy All-Ireland, Duxton, he's put it over the bar! Hello and welcome to Action Replay Extra Time, the GAA edition. I'm Brian McGinn with Enda Call and we are happy to welcome John Harrington from GAA.ie in the studio to discuss the provincial draws that were made earlier this month. Thanks for joining us, John. So assuming that Dublin, we're going to assume that Dublin are going to win, maybe, hopefully, hopefully that's not, not the case for the likes of, of Mead and, and Kildare and Westmead and, and the others, but how long can it go for Dublin to just keep on rolling over teams before something has to be done about this province? Because it seems like it's going to be tough for someone to challenge in the next five years. Yeah, I I don't see it happening in the next five years, really, because um, it's, it's a decent age profile Dublin have now. You know, they're not going to just go away. Um, I mean, you could have a scenario whereby in the hurling where the champions get a bye into the semi-final and the other teams go through a few rounds before they get to, get to play Dublin. So at least, you know, they're more battle-hardened. Uh, but really, you shouldn't be uh, saying the system is wrong or you know what can you know how can we bring Dublin back it's down it's the other to way around it's like the counties have to take hard look yep. at themselves we talked about me then you mentioned that uh, Trevor Giles interview and he was making the point that they just weren't at the races at underage development in terms of you know the strength and conditioning that they're doing how organised they are you know they were at least 10 years they, they started 2 years ago but that was 10 years behind Dublin already so it's going to take a while to catch up in fairness now to Kildare they're putting in huge work um, now they've been unfortunate to lose some leading quality players to the AFL, and a lot of they've had a rash of injuries as well. But at least they're putting the work in. I can see them maybe in the next five years. Kildare will have a real cut off it, but we'll wait and see. It won't be easy. Dublin aren't going to come back to the pack. So just final, um, ending on uh, Leinster before we move on to Connacht. You think it's going to be a Dublin Mead final? I think it's going to be a Dublin Kildare final. A Dublin Kildare final. You think yeah. Kildare will pit me? That's, that's. I think. I mean, year two of the current management. Uh, I think they're going to learn a lot from last year, yeah. and I think they'll be better for it. But on the phone now is the fellow who wrote that article, Conan Doherty. He's going to be joining me to talk about the National Football League. Last year, I would have been one of those that were uh, very cynical about Dublin. I, I didn't buy into the fact that they were an unbeatable team. But this this year, I just don't see anybody catching them. I mean, when you got the former player of the year fighting for his place in, in half-back line, it just, it just tells you the, the depth in the squad they have. It's just absolutely incredible. What, what would you be? What would you have been cynical about? I just, I just felt that uh, there was too much... Too much talking on that Dublin were this unbeatable side and there was no team yeah. in Ireland that could beat them. And to, if I was being completely honest, I thought Kerry would have would have tipped them. And 
in the in the first All Ireland final, I thought Mayo bottled it. To be honest, I probably agree with you. I, I, pro- I pro- like the thing that stood out last year, especially in the semi. I think the final more than the semi final. It was just proved that they are human. Like there was this big mystique around them, and I was probably more guilty than anyone. And just I just thought they were unstoppable. But I think that was probably the most heartening thing of last year was just pointing out that this is just 15 men. All right, they're 15 unbelievable men, but they're 15 men and they sweat and they bleed and they tire and like they're still better than everyone else, but they can definitely be got at. Thanks very much for coming on, Conan. No bother at all. Thank you. If your dream doesn't scare you, then it's not big enough. He may never fight again. Do you? Are you concerned so dream, about that? As big as you dare. We're now joined by John S. Nash of uh, BloodyElbow.com. Um, John, when we just look at the McGregor situation, it's obviously been a, a very big um, hole. I wouldn't say fiasco, but it's been a very drawn-out process between you know the retirement, the unretirement. Um, he's off the card. He's, he's seemingly back on the card now. What have you made of the whole situation um, as a process? And, and do you think there was ever any real legitimate feeling that he was ever going to retire or he was ever even off the card in the first place? Um, I mean, what I feel as a member of the media is, uh, which no one will probably admit, but we're all celebrating because we're we're planning you know, our kids' college funds off the money we're making up traffic <laughs> off this. But uh, but I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't buy the retirement. As soon as he announced his retirement, I thought this was just a classic holdout. You know, pro athlete holdout. Uh, either he didn't want to do the. He really didn't want to do the promoting because it was like an athlete not wanting to show up for training camp uh, before the start of the season or he wanted more money, whatever reason, it just had that vibe of a holdout. And I, but I do buy that he's off 200 now. I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty much official from the UFC that they're not going to put him on the UFC 200 card as much as he'd like to be on it. How, how special was the performance to put 40 points on an all-black team? It's, uh, yeah, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the effort they made. It doesn't get bigger than this. No, it doesn't. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to find words. Robbie's tie was superb, and that just, uh, just, just enough to get us over the line. Hell of a day. Looking dangerous again. The men in green. Welcome to Action Replay Extra Time's Rugby Podcast. What a fascinating win weekend of rugby. We had Australia's magnificent win over Wales. We had Ireland's historic win over the All Blacks in Chicago. And really was just a, a fantastic weekend of, of rugby all, all around. Australia were really convincing, I suppose, for the first time in a while, Billy. But, I mean, the, the story of the weekend was definitely the Ireland and, and the All Blacks in Chicago. Oh, I pay no attention to what happened to the Millennium Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> History was made. Like, where were you when the All Blacks lost to Ireland I don't know about you Jack but I was sitting in the dingiest pub in Cork which was actually just quite uh, which was actually just quite frankly scary I was in the um, dingiest pub in Loud so not, really? too, not too different oh, maybe not as scary I mean, we as... must have been thinking about each other but uh, uh, it was just incredible to see and the whole experience it was numbing and I think I almost missed it but coming back to Dublin and, and meeting everyone and, and talking to people and, and talking to Brent as, as we're about to it was just it was just a phenomenal day and um, my dad was actually over there for the match and he was sending me constant updates and phone calls so 
it was just a terrific weekend of rugby. Were they uh, intoxicated phone calls or were they... Uh, were no, they... no, they weren't. He was very much focused on the game, um, fair play to him. Uh, but he co- I couldn't hear him through the sheer noise of Soldier Field. It looks like an incredible stadium. I'm sure it's an incredible it stadium like to watch rugby in as well. Stadium. But uh, no, I'm very interested for people to hear about what Brent Pope has to say about the match because... It was terrific. Yeah, we've talked to Brent a couple of times and he's he's always insightful, always got some really good things to talk about. So we'll play that for you now. I suppose off the emotion of it, it was just, I mean, what a weekend to be Irish. I mean, it, it, one of these games that we never thought we quite good. I think we always thought that maybe it might happen one day, but we weren't sure when that day would come. I think everyone thought it was going to come three years ago when we were up. 19 points at half time, 17 points up on the weekend and even still, they drew it back to four with another 20 minutes to play. So... We managed to hang on and we managed to score an extra try. We put 40 points on the best team in the world. A team that has 18 straight wins, two World Cups, best team in rugby, best team possibly in world sport, one of the most dominant teams in world sport. And to beat them in that, in that manner in Chicago, it's going to set up an even better game now in Dublin in two weeks. So we'll get into that a bit more later. But right now, without any further ado, we have Brent Pope. What did you think of the Ireland-New Zealand game on the weekend? Did you think that Saturday in Chicago, of, of all the games, 28 games, 27 losses, did you think that Saturday was finally going to be the day where Ireland toppled New, toppled New Zealand? No, is the honest answer. I think that uh, I was over in Chicago myself for the match and I was speaking at a number of events with uh, both New Zealanders and, and Irish at it. And I think, you know, I said to them, look, you know, you don't want to, you obviously want, it's going to happen at some stage. I just didn't feel that it would be at that stage. And I think that's the way most people feel. Everybody can get up and these sort of, um, I suppose, uh, get up in these audiences and say, oh, yeah, this is the day that Ireland are going to win. But if you look at the history and you look at the teams that have gone before and you look at the way that the All Blacks have been playing and you look at the fact that Ireland was probably didn't have that much preparation time, you'd have to say that, you know, everything was pointed against them. Having said that, having been over there for the Cubs match and see what they did and, you know, it's been the year of the underdog, I suppose, looking back in retrospect. I always thought New Zealand had a slight weakness and I thought it was... And it's sort of an, an arrogance of selection. I think that losing Brody Vitalik and uh, and Whitelock was a huge loss to them. I think that trying to put Jeremy Kino in there didn't work for them. But that's all in retrospect. To answer your first question, no, I didn't think. I thought I thought about twelve or fifteen points would have been a a pretty good result uh, trying to lose by. But uh, they were magnificent. It's as simple as that, you know. Uh, Brent, you spoke about those uncharacteristic mistakes. Players like Squire maybe performing better on a different day against South Africa. Do you think those mistakes and the performances of like someone like Liam Squire were they exposed a little bit because of the that huge work rate you were talking about about the Irish pack? Andrew Trimble, Absolutely. Andrew Trimble making huge hits. Josh Van der Fleer coming on for Jordy Murphy. He was only on for sixty minutes, but he made one less tackle than CJ Standard in eighty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like it's the old. Jackie Charlton put him under pressure. You know, you, see, you, let the, you let the All Blacks, you let the All Blacks run with the ball. There's no better team in the world. You let the All Blacks pass with the ball. There's no better team in the world. But if you shut them down and if you force them, as I said, into areas where they haven't particularly trained for, like how do you kind of train for losing matches or being in matches uh, where you're suddenly chasing the game? Uh, they're not used to that. They're, they're used to they're used to saying, okay, look, it's 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 it's. 10, 7 and a half time or something, then we'll just score a bucket load of points in the second half. Then the likes of Ben Smith and Adola and Fikatau and all these guys can start running with gay abandon. Some passes start to stick. You know, you put them under pressure and suddenly they, they're starting to make mistakes in their own in their own 22 and turning over ball and Ireland are kicking downfield intelligently. 
you know, you start throwing away possession and field position, you know, teams have a real chance against the All Blacks. And certainly Warren Gatlin, well, he'll know anyway, but Warren Gatlin would have looked on that and said, you know, that the bulk of the Lions squad, which will come from Ireland if they continue in that vein, it really can have a good go at New Zealand over there next year. Because I think if you start to expose, you know, you're not going to beat them playing ball like the way they play them, but you are going to beat them by doing exactly what Ireland did, putting them under pressure, making them, you know, make uncharacteristic mistakes, turning them at every chance with a kick, you know, taking on their scrum and line-out, then, then, you know, they proved that they were eminently beatable. Terrific weekend of rugby, and like you said at the very start, there was absolutely no reason why Ireland should have won that game going into it. No. But you talked about someday we'd, we'd think about think about winning the game and, you know, maybe the lead-up would be we'd we'd beat England in Twickenham and South Africa would come to Ireland and, and we'd beat them, then Australia and Paul O'Connell's son would, would eventually, on his debut, come into the team and then we'd beat New Zealand. But to come into them in their run of form and us off the back of a pretty disappointing series loss to South Africa, it was just it was all, the, all the more special for that. Now we're joined in studio now with Ian McKinley, formerly of Leinster and Ireland, and now playing in Italy. Uh, Ian, thanks very much for coming. No problem. Uh, firstly, can you just give us a run through of your injury? What actually happened to you in the beginning? So in 2010, I was playing a club game for UCD, and at the bottom of a rook, uh, after about the second minute of the game, I was on my back, and unfortunately, a teammate uh, stood stood on my eyeball and it perforated my my eye. So it, was a, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> and you you were left with uh, damage to your eye to the extent where you couldn't you couldn't play at such a young age. It must have been frustrating for you. Yeah, it was very very difficult and uh, it sort of in the interim cha- changes your life uh, for certainly a few months uh, in terms of driving, in terms of pouring uh, a glass of water. Uh, your peripheral vision is sort of skewed, but eventually you get that back and uh, everything is okay now, thankfully. And just uh, Ian, how was it? What was it like moving from an environment like Leinster to to going to somewhere like Italy, where there is a language barrier and coaching, and then moving into playing? It's very very frustrating, actually. Is the 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 first word I would I would use because you can't get your point across as as clearly as you would you would want it. Um, but uh, thankfully, I'm fluent now in that language, so I look back now as as uh, I look back at that experience with huge positivity because now I can speak it and. Uh, they they know my uh, full feelings if they don't do an exercise well, so it's and, worked out. And now, you know wear protective goggles for your eyes. Uh, can you just tell us the story of how these goggles came around? Yeah, so um, World Rugby were initially uh, had a project in in the pipeline with with protective goggles. We wanted to speed up the process, and we got in contact with the NCAD design project uh, or the sector over there in, in NCAD and there was a student who was willing to drop his end of year project to concentrate on possibly uh, making a design for rugby goggles and um, luckily through the work of World Rugby and through the, the student's work the, the the final product of the goggles came through. And you, fi- you finally got back to playing uh, rugby professionally. How did it feel to actually get back to the game that you loved? Yeah, well, when I first started out, I was playing very much amateur rugby. The level was not not particularly high, but it was just a fantastic feeling just to to run around and to feel protected. Feel protected as well with the goggles was nice. And now that I'm back playing full time professional rugby, it's uh, it's certainly a roller coaster of emotions. But I'm I'm thrilled to be taking the ride. <laughs> and uh, you you had some trouble initially with some uh, some of the world uh, rugby unions, particularly the RFU. 
uh, to allow you to play with these goggles. Um, was that frustrating at any point? Yeah, of course, because I, I played a game for Zebra against a Welsh team in Italy, and uh, this was a couple uh, last year, I should say, and two, two weeks later I wasn't permitted to play a game against Connacht in Ireland, so that was obviously very difficult, so we set up all this uh, online petition. Uh, the online petition works, and... Uh, Thankfully, the IRFU, and we're very grateful that they they changed their their mind on this. You've uh, you've since had the chance to return to Ireland yes. with uh, Treviso at the ODS. You talked about a roller coaster for emotions. What was it like returning to the ODS? Yeah, well, even even previously, I I played a game actually up in Ulster uh, for Zebra, but uh, obviously this game was a lot closer to to yeah. the heart. Playing in Leinster. Uh, Honestly, the first thing was huge disappointment because we lost and we had the, we had the opportunity to actually win that yeah. game. Um, but when you reflect further and you look back uh, down the line, you realise the magnitude of the achievement to get to get to that place. So um, I was humbled by the the humbled by the reaction I got from the crowd when I came on. Uh, it was just disappointing we couldn't finish the game. And at the end of the day, that was my job to finish off the game. Mm. But we, we we didn't do it. But uh, uh, it's certainly a memory that I will never, never, ever forget. Speaking about that reception, of course, professional athlete, it's all about results. But coming back, what was the reception even like off former teammates who you played with? Yeah, well, it was, it was sort of also surreal because uh, probably the best game I've ever had for Leinster was against Treviso in the RDS. So it was a very sort of surreal situation to be playing on the opposite, the opposite team. Um, but no, I mean... The guys on the opposition are very professional as well. They, you know, they're focused on their job. So you don't, you know, you just got the occasional tap. Just yeah. say, how are you? And then you're just <laughs> straight into the game. And then after the game, just a quick hello. And then you yeah. scoot off back to your hotel and you're you're away back back to your country. So just keep and, going. And uh, ju- just in terms of the, the rugby culture, what, what are the key differences between club rugby in Italy and Ireland? You have to remember in, in Italy, it's the 10th sport. So soccer rules rules everything over there. Um, I think the the it certainly has a culture. Treviso has the biggest culture, rugby culture in Italy, and and has a respected rugby culture within Europe. But it's just it's 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 different atmospheres. It's different. Um, they have different ways of looking at rugby. It's more forward orientated, more so you say bash bash instead of maybe looking for space. So it's certainly certainly different from that that point of view. That that reporter in the ODS asked you about international rugby. You're racking up a few more minutes with uh, Treviso. Uh, Conor Shea's at the helm. With the faith that these teams like Zebra and Treviso have put in you, is there a desire to maybe repay that with someone like Conor Shea if he, if he ever gave you the call? Yeah, I mean, as a, as a, as a, as a professional sports person, you want to test yourself against the best yep. in the world. You want to reach the highest level that you can uh, that you that you can reach personally, um, so I would be uh, very foolish to to turn that away. But I have to get get to that stage yeah. first. And for me, again, um, I don't think I think um, I need to merit a lot more Clock in terms. Yeah, yeah and, but play consistently uh, for me is just the key thing because it's all well and good. Maybe having a couple of games well played well for Leinster and then a couple of games for Treviso. That's the easy thing to do, but it's your consistency in the game that that gets you those games. Um, but uh, as I said, I'm I'm from from where I was, considering I was <laughs> retired three years ago to yeah. where I am now. It's a it's a pretty good jump. So um, yeah, you just you just keep on going. Yeah. 
And uh, you're you're only 26 now, still have a long career ahead of you. Do you ever think that you might return to Ireland to play club club rugby? Um, it's a good question. Um, I don't really know. Certainly, my life has been based in Italy for the last little while. Um, again, that just comes under performance. I really think because the top provincial teams, if you look at the the talent that's at their disposal now, uh, it, the majority of it is young Irish talent, which is fantastic to see. So I would certainly have my work cut out if I ever did come back. You never say never in sport, but I'm very much happy over over in my adopted country. What were you happy with about your side? Oh, happy, happy, everything, everything, very good, very happy with my team. But you didn't win, did you, Brendan? No, when we didn't win, it's true. Yeah. It Why didn't you win? Oh, good question, that very good question. When it's it's important to win. It is important to win. We must try harder. Absolutely, yeah. So you think it's a lack of effort? Oh, lack of effort, lack of effort. Can't think it's a lack of effort. Wouldn't so, never. So, 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 so what is it, Brendan? Uh, what would it be? Let me think. Uh, I can't. I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that one. Think about it deeply. Moving on to rugby, we've got Gordon Darcy on the line. He's going to talk us through the Leinster versus Munster game coming up this weekend. Um, Gordon wrote a piece in the Irish Times entitled "The Derby That Needs to Get Back to Its Roots." How do you think this game ranks today? Because I remember the 2008 Heineken Cup semi-final, obviously the one in Crow Park. Not only did you have Irish internationals on both sides, I mean, look, you can go through a lot of them, yourself, Brian, Shane, you had Paul and Raj on the other side, but then you also had guys like, you know, the Rocky Elsom, Dougie Howell that was on the Munster team as well. Um, do you still, there seem to be a lot of probably esteem and probably, you know, there's a lot of uh, international players in those games where maybe in Irish rugby today we might not see the same amount of international players. I think a lot of those players would now be playing in England and France. Do you, do you still think the game has the same amount of uh, maybe prestige as what it might have had 10 years ago? Like the game overall or this particular match? Well, this particular matchup, because I suppose the, the, both of these you teams... Know, sorry, you were you kind of uh, kind of talking talking in and around it. Um, yeah, the, you're talking about something else there. You're talking about a recruitment policy. Yes. Um, and that has been... Largely, I don't think there's much debate around it. The recruitment policy hasn't been as free as the provinces would like. IRFU have their say on it, and everybody else has their, has their opinion on it. I personally think that the game is better off uh, for having a player of, say, uh, Charles Piathau's level, um, in, in, and for Ruan Piener, and the quality of players... If they're not foreign, if they're not overseas projects in the other provinces, is is questionable. You look at Bundyaki, and he's a he's a fantastic uh, improvement to the to the game and to the Pro 12. Um, as far as internationals go, you you know you look up the matchups that are going to happen this weekend. You kind of you Peter Romani's back. Whoever he's playing against is going to be Josh van der Flyer, Dan Levy. Great matchup there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Heaslip against um, CJ Sander again. A great, uh, a, a great, um, a great, a great backup there. And um, the f- 15, Simon Zebo is going to be coming back in. And um, Rob Carney fit. You know, there, there, there is matchups right across the. I'm sorry, it does look like it's going to be a little early for Robbie Henshaw, but there is pl- there's plenty of potential matchups and the quality. The names probably you're not talking about them largely in the same breath as you talk of an O'Connell, O'Driscoll, or an O'Gara. Mm-hmm. But how many people? How many times are we going to have players of that caliber in one generation again? You know, they're you sometimes one one in a generation players, and we seem to ha- we seem to get two or three or four of them in every team. So maybe we're just it was a very rich uh, um, period. Um, but you know, there's guys like Jack McGrath, who would be I'm very interested to see how he goes in this game. It'll be a very uh, important season for him. You know, a potential Lions tour at the end of this year for him. 
Well, is there just a sense that maybe that... Gordon, you mentioned in terms of the age-old argument of how can players get experience. Someone like Joey Carberry, who's 20 years of age, and he talked about Paul O'Connell already making ripples at the age of 23. Here's Joey Carberry, has announced himself in this Lancer team, overtaking the likes of Ross Byrne and Cahal Marsh coming off an under-20s campaign. He's now in the wider training squad for Ireland during the week in Carton House. What, is, is he a player who can really stand up and be seen as a, as a bright young talent as the likes of O'Connell was in these early games? I think you're probably overstating a lot of, a lot of things there. Um, definitely his overtaken Ross and Cahill uh, as, the, as the number two out half in Leinster. Everything else hasn't announced himself anywhere. He had three, he had three good games for Leinster in a Pro 12 um, and not against any dramatic, uh, not a dramatic step up. Uh, from where he was, um, and had some notable errors in that, and his tactical his tactical development is still, you know, is cl- as clear that it needs to be seen. And in the larger in the larger training squad, you know, you can you can talk in and around that. Uh, what you call it? he's not going to fly in Madigan home from from France. All I would say about Joey Carberry is has loads and loads and loads of potential, but has a huge huge volume of work to get through before um, he would ever be talked about in the same, uh, being talked about as uh, has arrived or has announced himself onto, onto, onto anything, um, has plenty of potential but there's been lots of players that have had plenty of potential and then when the game catches up with them and the game figures them out the biggest challenge for him is that he has to keep evolving as, uh, as every you know, four or five months uh, pass by and if you can keep evolving with the game as the game tries to defend you then he'll do very well Gordon thanks very much for coming no, on Gordon today I really really thanks appreciate much, it guys. and uh, all the best yeah, we'll look forward to Take reading you in the Irish Times around this fixture is a huge amount of emotion a huge amount of passion and it's steeped in history oh. I feel his faith Jack Carting waltzes through I think I think too much I feel his faith it's an excellent team try it's right off the top drawer ain't nobody watching I feel his faith a spell of rugby I just fade I away. Feel it. And it's Isabella who hits the sweet spot for Lanster. for a second try of the game on that play says in Dublin. Welcome to the rugby version of Action Replay Extra Time. Uh, we're here to discuss all things um, rugby, uh, Champions Cup action, and it's going to be an inevitably emotional weekend in, in the rugby this weekend. I'm joined here by Joseph O'Gorman and Billy Keenan. How are you getting on, lads? Yep, very well. You know, Anthony Foley's passing shows that despite dwindling attendances and success, you know, Munster still matters. You know, Munster still matters to Ireland. What we, as members of other provinces, that image that appears in your head as soon as you hear the word, the name, the history and culture comes to the fore, that Munster as a team still matters to its people. And I think the overwhelming support from players, ex-past players, coaches within Ireland, clubs from abroad, it's been phenomenal. And it really shows the integrity of rugby is still there. People talk about money taking over the sport but it, yeah, these amateur-esque 
aspects to it, you know, clapping your team off the field, you know, making a tunnel, those three cheers, these are still important. And I think Anthony Foley and what everyone has said about it, he reduces back to its core and important parts. And I think he just epitomises that, that, that bit about rugby, that bit that's special. And unfortunately, not not unfortunately, it's going to be a tribute to the life, the celebration of Anthony Foley this match uh, tomorrow. Joseph, can you see this not being a distraction for both sides? And uh, I know um, the Glasgow coach says that it, 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 both sides are going to benefit positively from it in this tribute. But do you see that this could actually negatively affect both sides? Oh, just the preparations, I can't even imagine how they must have been preparing for this match. Like You see, a guy like Anthony Foley would have been such a huge presence around the training ground and the dressing rooms. It's just like you saw the interview with like Peter O'Mahony and Razzie Rasmus. Like, Peter O'Mahony was nearly nearly in tears with it, like with the effect, with the effect he had, like, couldn't just couldn't do him justice at all. Um, I think in that press conference, um, Erasmus looked sick, he looked shocked, and O'Mahony said himself that he won't be able to do him justice and I think Brian what you said about Anthony Foley being there and a member of the community Peter O'Mahony said himself that there hasn't been a Munster team in his lifetime that Anthony Foley hasn't been integral to and I think that's that's what that's what it's all about and and to see the funeral preparations yes there's it's a sour it's a dire occasion but to see that red coming to the fore as well and all the songs being sung uh, I, I think it's special and I just uh, our condolences and, and deepest thoughts go out to his family and unfortunately we have to just brush over the actual game all the emotions aside how do you see this going it's going to be incredibly tough um, I know they've dedicated the whole match day programme to, to Foley um, it's hard to see how the team announcement is at 3 o'clock today after the funeral and it's hard to see I mean, it's not even important to these players who no. have been around them. Looking to Glasgow, their campaign still goes on. And I hope that the people, and I know they will, Breen, you're on your way down soon, that they will show and response and appear at Thomond Park. And I think looking at players like O'Mahony and Dunica Ryan, and even with the likes of Jerry Flannery still involved in the coaching structure, Razzie Erasmus himself, I think they'll perform for Foley and, and I really hope they do and I think all of the extra time uh, we, we, we give our condolences to the Foley family and the Munster community and all, all of Irish who has been affected by this by this tragic loss but that's all we have time for unfortunately lads um, you can you can look at our, our please check our extra time podcast on SoundCloud and listen, tune in to Action Replay on Monday at 7pm and, and Thursday at 6pm that's all we have time for lads I'd like to thank Billy and I'd like to thank Joseph and bye for now uh, ladies and gentlemen we have to bring you some deeply shocking and tragic news that has just come through to us I had a, I had a telephone conversation with Anthony not long after I was appointed and um, I was really really impressed by the calibre of the man even though it was only a short conversation and Foley scores his fourth try for Ireland. Out of nothing. Great play. Everything that we know about Munster rugby now, the uncompromising nature of it, the honesty of it, that was Anthony Foley. He came out of the soil of Munster, and it's just a terrible sadness that he's going back into that soil too early. Throw my nerves.